Okay, quiz. Quick quiz, one question quiz. Anybody ever hear of the word heuristics? Two hands, and they're a little bit embarrassed. Well, they're not embarrassed, but they're being humble by not putting their hands way up loud. All right, kids, listen, because I'm going to give you a word that you can impress your teachers with. Heuristics. I should have made a slide for it, but I didn't. H-E-U-R-I-S-T-I-C-S. Heuristics. We're going to have a little fun with this today. Heuristics is a fancy name for the process by which your brain forgets 99.999% of everything that it receives. Heuristics is the process by which your brain forgets almost everything. Now, some of you in the back are saying, man, I am an expert at heuristics. I should have got a PhD in heuristics because my brain is just, my brain is the best at forgetting stuff. Well, let me, good for you, good for you. Uh, <laughs> I want to give you an attaboy or an girl. They're right off the bat here. Well, heuristics is... Um, when you think about how much information your brain is receiving all of the time, even though your brain can hold tons and tons of data, it's not infinite. It's like the hard drive on my computer. Eventually it would fill up and it receives so much data that it would fill up in a day if it remembered everything. And it just cannot do that. Think about the last time you went to a party or a social gathering, the picnic. Uh, some of the life group folks were at a picnic on Wednesday. Think of the last time you went there. Now, you could probably tell me a lot about that. You feel like you remember that party really, really well, right? Well, what was the host wearing? When you greeted the host, did you shake hands or no? If it was a woman, was she wearing nail polish? What color was it? Did you use the restroom? What color was the hand towel in the restroom? What books were on the bookshelf at the host's house? How many of those do you remember? See, there was a point in time where that information was in your brain. There was, a, there was an instant in time where I could have asked you that question and you could have answered it, but your brain forgot it. It deleted that information, didn't it? And you didn't even have to think about it. You didn't even have to tell your brain what to delete and what to keep. It just knows isn't that amazing? That is incredible. And you feel like you remember that event really, really well. Even though your brain has gone and forgotten 99% of all the details of that event. Nevertheless, you remember it really, really well. That's incredible. I'm serious. That's incredible. That is incredible, that, that feature that your brain uh, uh, can do. This is very, very useful. It's very, very useful because think about this. You, are, you have so much data. Heuristics is how your brain makes decisions when it needs to make a quick decision, not necessarily the best decision. So think about when you're getting dressed in the morning. You have probably, um, well, infinite options. Even if you don't have a very big wardrobe, no. even if you don't have a very big wardrobe, you have infinite options. How many socks do you have? Belts. Underwear, undershirts, shirts, hair accessories, right? You have an infinite number of options. If you were to sit there when you wake up in the morning and contemplate all of the options that you had in order to make the best decision about what to wear, you would never leave the house. So heuristics kicks in. You probably have a handful of go-tos, and you just quickly make a decision. 
Heuristics also keeps you safe. If you are walking down a dark street, a dark alley, and there's a shadow passes by behind you, you just catch it out of the corner of your eye. Now, there are many, 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 many possibilities as to what that could have been. It could have been a leaf. It could have been a plastic bag. It could have been a cat. It could have been anything, right? Heuristics does not, your brain says, we aren't going to spend time thinking about all of the different things that it could have been in order to determine what it most likely was in order to make the correct or best decision. We ain't going to do that. We're just going to walk faster, right? Because it could have been something bad. So that's how your brain uses heuristics in good ways. But heuristics can be harmful too, or it can be a bias. It can create a bias. Heuristics can create a bias too. Because it's how your brain makes sense of all the complexities in the world. Again, you just don't have time. You don't have time to think about all of the possibilities, what ifs. And so we do this. Listen, to when we do... Um, so if you see somebody on the news, for example, and they're wearing an NRA hat and they have the, the NRA is the graphic at the bottom of the screen. Now, before that person has said anything, you are predisposed to believe it or not, to receive it favorably or to receive it unfavorably based upon how your tribe has conditioned you to think of the NRA. Just an example. Another one, really common, and here we're finally getting to the point. But here, uh, the, uh, the the good old days syndrome. See, heuristic. We really like to remember pleasant thoughts. We don't like to remember bad things. We just don't like our brains. Don't, so all of that stuff, the ninety nine percent of stuff that your brain just deletes without you telling it to delete it, the bad stuff it really likes to delete. So the good old days. We all like to think that we don't have time to sit around and think about, well, were the, where's my childhood really that great? Or was the country or the culture really that holy and pure and nice and all of that way back when? Well, we don't have time for that. And your brain doesn't like to remember negative stuff. And so it's natural to have the good old days syndrome. Oh, back in the good old days, everybody was nice. Nobody was oppressed. Nobody was greedy. Nobody was addicted to stuff. None of the politicians were crooked. It was just, we all just drove brand new uh, Model T Fords and tipped our hats to each other saying, howdy-do, and it was just, it was just great. And so why can't we just make America great again, right? <laughs> okay, I'm glad you laughed. That wasn't in the script. But the good old days syndrome, it's real. And so I'm not telling you not to be nostalgic. Nostalgic is nice. And I like hey, the songs we sang today. They made me feel good about high school. I did not like high school. Lots of high school was not fun for me. But hey, when I listen to these songs, eh, I kind of think I remember favorably some stuff about high school. That's okay. Christians, though, be aware of this. Because Christians, we are more prone to the good old days syndrome because after all, our scriptures, I had Diane read it in just a little bit, a little bit ago. Our scriptures end with a, with a kabam. They end with a cataclysmic battle of good versus evil. And the devil gets punished forever and ever. And, 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 and Jesus comes again and we get this new city and everything's made perfect. Oh my goodness. So surely things are getting worse and worse and worse as we approach that battle. Right? And our scriptures, they begin in a garden. 
They begin in a garden, and it's called Eden. And sometimes when we want to say that something is perfect, we'll even use it as an adjective, and we'll say, it was Edenic. You ever hear that word before? It was Edenic, meaning it was perfect. Because after all, everybody knows that God made the world perfect. Right? Wrong. Wrong. The Bible never says that the world was made perfect to begin with. And I'm going to show it to you if you don't believe me. We're going to go to the book of Genesis. And we're going to see just how the world was created. And we're going to see that in fact, from the very beginning, the world was in need of work. Father, bless us with clarity. Father, give us that wisdom that you promised to give to anybody who asks. We ask for wisdom. The wisdom to see the truth, to understand our own biases. And not just to see the truth, God, but we want to believe the truth. We want to act on the truth. We want to pursue the truth, even when it means something in us, something in me might need to change or shift or adapt. So that's hard to do, God. So I ask you give us wisdom, and I also ask, Father, that you would give us courage, courage to, to, to follow you and your word, no matter where your word takes us. We want to follow it. We want to be true to your truth. Please give us that gift this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Genesis 1, verse 26 creation story. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them, man, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, one more. Did you know there are two creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2? The second creation story is a recapitulation. Kind of like we have four Gospels to tell the story of Jesus, we have two creation stories. The second one starts in verse 4 of chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man 
of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You know what my name means, Adam? <laughs> Dirt, yeah. Dust. You can call me Dusty. <laughs> and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is God's Word. So tomorrow is Labor Day, federal holiday. We rest from our labors, as I told the kids. And now Malachi and Caleb, everybody knows why we celebrate Labor Day, right? <laughs> Not paying attention. <laughs> Classic. Uh, we celebrate, of course, to pay homage to all of those people who have worked to build uh, roads and railways, factories, industries, all of those things that have made our country into a global economic superpower. And as Christians, we have another reason. We have another reason to celebrate Labor Day. And it's more important than our economic prowess as a nation. As Christians, we celebrate Labor Day because, like I told the kids, work is a gift from God. Well, if you're taking notes, write that down. Work is a gift from God. Some Christians mistakenly think that work is a result of the fall or is a result of sin. It's not. Some people think the Garden of Eden was this perfect place where nothing ever was uncomfortable, where Adam and Eve just strolled around like naked, long-haired hippies with nothing to do except hang out with God. That's simply not the picture that the Bible paints. And it's understandable why then, if you think of Adam and Eve as naked, long-haired hippies, you might, and as the Garden of Eden as this perfect place where there's really not much to do, you might not get too excited about heaven. And I've heard no, uh, well, well, put it this way, what am I going to do in heaven? I have had no small number of people ask me that question because, frankly, heaven just doesn't seem that exciting to them. There's much more to do here on earth. I'm afraid I might get bored in heaven. Eden was not perfect. Eden was sinless. The distinction. Eden was not perfect, but Eden was sinless. There was no sin 
Mankind had not yet introduced that rebellion to God. But there was work to be done. The man and the woman, they're created in God's image and they're given responsibilities. Did you hear what they were? Rule the creation, subdue, right? Subdue the creation. All the beasts were given to the humans. All the plants and trees for food. God was saying, rule my creation for me. Just like me, just like I would. Be my representatives here and bring order and beauty to the surrounding chaos. In other words, build civilization. Adam and Eve were supposed to build the perfect, God-honoring civilization of humanity. But, of course, Adam and Eve had other ideas. They thought that they, they knew better. And they thought that surely this creation didn't have to be built how God said it could be built. Surely they could come up with their own way. And they rebelled against their creator. They introduced rebellion and sin into humanity. And ever since then, every human being has inherited this heart, this heart of rebellion against their creator. But work, work, was always part of the goodness of creation. Every day in the creation story, God makes something, and then he says, he calls that thing what? Good. Tove. Everybody say tove. Tove. Very good. On the sixth day, he creates humanity, and he says, not that this is tove, but this is tove ma'od. Everybody say, Tov Ma'od. You're learning Hebrew. Come on now, you're learning Hebrew with me. Tov Ma'od. Tov Ma'od. Ma'od is an adjective in Hebrew, and it means strongly. Strongly, muchly. So all of the other days were good. Tov. The last day, after he had created man and given man his marching orders, told him what the work was to be done, then God sat back and said, this is Tov Ma'od. This is muchly good. This is strongly good. Okay? So when you are given those chores to do, kids, and you don't think you want to do them, I just want you to say to yourself, this is Tov Ma'od. You can say that, okay? Come up with a little song. You'll be speaking Hebrew, you'll be remembering biblical truth, and you'll be getting your work done, obeying your parents. Okay? So that was the beginning, the good old days. And work was always part of the story. Well, what about the end? In the end, what about heaven? What about heaven? Are we going to be bored in heaven? What's heaven going to be like? What are we going to do in heaven? Uh, John, the Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, again, what Diane read a little bit to us, uh, he is given this vision of what heaven will look like. He's given this vision of a, of a city. Did you catch how big that city was? Anybody remember? What was it, Jennifer? Really, 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 really big. Uh, did anybody remember the number? 1,400, good, you remembered, 1,400 miles. That's just one length of it, right? It's a square. 1,400 miles, that's like from here to Phoenix or something, right? Probably. Denver, Phoenix, somewhere. how far is Denver, Petra? Oh, you don't know? Denver's 12? Okay, so further than that. So that's a big city, right? Coming down from heaven. And now let's look at what the rest of the scripture says. Because I'm going to go on from where Diane stopped. And let's read in Revelation 22. Uh, John says, 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, in the city, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, there were three verbs in that passage that the people of God will be doing in heaven. What did you hear? Rain, that was the last one, good. R-E-I-G-N, not R-A-I-N. Rain, there were two others. Huh? They were called the servants. Worship, good, they will worship him and they will... Go ahead, give it to him, Brett. Back one. Oh, I can't do that to you, can I? Getting you all discombobulated. They will see him. They will see. So you can write that down. They will worship. They will see and they will reign. They will worship, they will see, and they will reign. Reign, in other words, means work. A king does not sit in a hammock eating grapes all day, being fed to him by a fair lass or a maiden. No, the king has to go to war. The king has to do create laws. The king has all kinds of things to do. The king is the busiest guy in the whole kingdom doing work. That's what it means to reign. So what are you really good at? What are your talents? What are you really good at? What do you love to do? As best I can understand Scripture, that's what you're going to be doing in heaven. Only without the complications that sin brings into the, pub, the problem. Of selfishness, of egotism, of that malicious competition where somebody's trying to keep you down. Because everybody's going to be doing the work for the glory of God. Whatever you love to do, whatever you're really good at. That's what you'll be doing. But you'll be doing work. And as you do that work... God will be there in a way even more tangible than he is today, looking over your shoulder and just beaming ear to ear, smiling like a proud papa, watching you use the gifts, the talents, and the desires that he's given you. You ever think about heaven that way? One of my trumpet player friends used to say he couldn't wait to get to heaven because he and Gabriel were just going to jam. All day. He got all the time in the world. Why not, right? So what is your work today? I'm going to close with this. What is your work? What is your calling? People ask pastors that all the time too. What's God's will for my life? What am I supposed to do? Well, just look around you. The question isn't as overwhelming as it seems. Look around you. Look around you. What are your roles? Are you a mom? Work. It's hard sometimes, of course. But God didn't, listen to me, God didn't give the work 
of cleaning little Johnny's diapers to any other human being. He gave it to you. Are you a husband? Work. God gave you a gift. Your wife. Don't put that gift off to the side or take her for granted. Don't put that gift off to the side or take her for granted. Care for her. Treasure her. Man up and do the work. God's only given one man on earth the work of husbanding your wife. You know, husband is a verb. God's only given one man on earth the work of husbanding your wife. That's you. Have you been blessed with a home? A yard? A farm? Work! I'm going to close with a, a little bit of a lengthy quote, but it's so good. It's from John Calvin in his golden book on the human life, or on the Christian life. Listen to what he says. Finally, we should note that the Lord commands every one of us in all the actions of our life to be faithful to our calling. For he knows that the human mind burns with restlessness, that it is swept easily hither and thither, and that its ambition to embrace many things at once is insatiable. Therefore, to prevent that general confusion being produced by our folly, and boldness. He has appointed to everyone his particular duties in the different spheres of life. So see, work is there to keep you out of trouble. What's the, hand, the proverb, idle? Idle hands, what is it? Idle hands is the devil's workshop. And that no one might rashly go beyond his limits, he has called such spheres of life vocations or callings. Every individual's sphere of life, therefore, is a post assigned him or her by the Lord. Our present life, therefore, will be best regulated if we always keep our calling in mind. No one will then be tempted by his own boldness to dare to undertake what is not compatible with his calling. Because he will know that it is wrong to go beyond his limits. Anyone who is not in the front ranks should be content to accomplish his private task. And should not desert the place where the Lord has put him. It will be no small comfort for his cares, labors, troubles, and other burdens. When a man knows that in all these matters, God is his guide. The magistrate will then carry out his office with greater willingness. The father of a family will then perform his duties with more courage. And everyone in his respective sphere of life will show more patience and will overcome the difficulties, cares, miseries, and anxieties in his path when he will be convinced that every individual has his task laid upon his shoulders by God. Ever counsel somebody who's anxious or depressed to stay busy? To find something to do? That's great advice. That's how God has wired us. If we follow, I'll close, if we follow our divine calling, we shall receive this unique consolation 
that there is no work, this is the consolation you will receive, that there is no work so mean and so sordid that does not look truly respectable and highly important in the sight of God. Read that one more time. There is no work so, so meaningless, so mundane. There is no work so mundane that it does not look truly respectable and highly important in the sight of God.